If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke 22, Luke 22, it's page 1048 in the Pew Bible before you there. Um, and just to read along, you may click in the Bible app on your phone, not to look at the predictions for this afternoon's NFL Conference Championships, not to play Coin Master or whatever game is trending right now, but to follow along with the reading of Scripture. You may get your phone out as well. Here at Shore Harvest, we know that the only infallible rule for faith and practice is the Word of God. In other words, we know that the only sure and faultless foundation for our lives is this book. So I invite you to hear now the Word of God in Luke 22, beginning now in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house... The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of God. To him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, reveal to us, make known to us, uncover for us, Uh, the teaching that is found here. There is so much here. Let us see at least one important aspect of this this morning, that we would leave this place having a richer, deeper, fuller understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We seek this in his name. Amen. So this sermon series uh, called Dinners with Jesus, obviously food has been a a central theme, a kind of a core thread going through all of this. And this morning, we're going to step back and kind of take a bigger uh, view, look, look at a broader spectrum of the scriptures and the place of food in them and in our lives as they reflect uh, uh, the scriptures. And I have to admit, 
I was kind of hoping to begin this morning with a cool new vocabulary word. I thought maybe I would be introducing to you the subject of trophology. Perhaps from biology class, you remember that plants are autotrophs. They are self-feeders. Troph is the Greek word for food or a meal. Thus, trophology would be the study of food. But alas, that is not the title for this discipline. In fact, I went and looked it up. What is the actual thing we're doing this morning called? And sadly, it doesn't have a cool name like trophology. In fact, it doesn't have a cool name at all. The study of food is known as, wait for it, food studies. Yeah, I was a little underwhelmed as well. Turns out food studies is the academic uh, uh, research into the place of food in culture, in writing, in literature, in history, in, in artwork, etc. Food studies is an actual uh, 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 academic discipline. It didn't sound to me like that was worthy of what we were doing here. So, you know, I decided if angelology could be a subdiscipline of theology, then this morning we're going to consider foodology. So we're going to look at foodology 101 this morning, the biblical study of food. Humanity's relationship, that is foodology, is a complicated and interesting thing, particularly from a biblical perspective. We briefly and kind of informally introduced this topic a few weeks ago, but I want us to look at it more carefully today. And so we're really going to develop kind of two key ideas, and once we've developed those, look at how they push us to an important conclusion. Those two key ideas that we're going to develop this morning, number one, God created us, God made us susceptible to death. God made us susceptible to death. And the key idea number two is that we made ourselves subject to death. God made us susceptible to death. We made ourselves subject to death. And as we develop these, we're going to see the theme of food and how it plays out in all of this. And hopefully then we are going to take these main ideas of our little study of foodology and see if we don't better understand the Lord's Supper as it's presented here in Luke 22. So, foodology. Let's begin at the beginning, a very good place to begin, to paraphrase Mary Poppins. I noted a few weeks ago that God's first recorded words to mankind were regarding food. Genesis 2.16. You can turn there if you like, Genesis 2.16, might have some value. And if you're you're finding that verse, I will share with you that somebody pointed out to me after the sermon that Genesis 1.26 actually records God saying something else altogether to mankind. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And it's certainly true that Genesis 1.26 comes in our Bibles before 2.16, but I will actually point out that the latter comes earlier in history. Recall that Genesis 1 is an overview of creation, and Genesis 2 goes back and looks in some detail at the creation specifically of mankind. And in Genesis 1.26, we have God speaking to them, plural, Male and female, they're both there, Adam and Eve. But in Genesis 2.16, Eve has not yet been created. 
God is speaking only to Adam. And so we have the first recorded words of God to mankind in Genesis 2.16. And what were those words? You may eat, surely eat, of any tree in the garden. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. We need to draw out from that some of the implications for our study of food. As I said, the first point we're going to make is that God made us susceptible to death. While we are like God in many ways, when it comes to our mortality, we are not the same as God. God cannot die. God's being cannot cease to be. God is impervious to death, destruction, diminishment, non-being. Our being is inherently different. Though we were not created to die, we were created able to die. Our being, our life, is not inherently immortal. Even our souls, we often speak of the immortality of our souls, but they are still of a different type of immortality than God's. Or do we imagine that God could not wipe us out if he wanted to? We don't stop to think about that, but we recognize immediately that if God wanted even our souls to cease to exist, they would cease to exist. Our immortality is of a different type than God's. We were created susceptible to death. Now, how do we see that playing out? Look at this comment in Genesis 2.16. We were created with a dependency upon God. We were made dependent upon him. That we were susceptible to death implies a certain level of dependence, but that dependence could have remained uh, somewhat hidden. It could have been of of a metaphysical essence that we might not notice. But the first thing God says to us is you need to eat. You can't make it on your own. You can't survive in and of yourself. You need food. And so food immediately becomes the outward manifestation of our dependence upon God. In food, in our need for food, in the pre-fall Garden of Eden, Adam needed to eat. It is not our sin that has made us dependent upon God. It is the essence of our being that we are dependent Upon God. For without him, we would not be. And without him, we cannot continue to be. God made us dependent beings. But, and this is kind of my sub-point B, God blessed us in that dependence. Our dependence is not an onerous or difficult dependence. Ironically, the Lord of all the universe does not lord over us our dependence upon him. 
He doesn't make it something unpleasant. This is not a, a drudgery or a, you know, a, 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 a humiliating hoop that we have to jump through. We don't have to go each day and beg and go, please give me food or I will starve to death. It was just there. It was there. Take, eat. God made us dependent upon him, but did so in a gracious way. More than that, he did so in a way that is pleasing and enjoyable. What does Eve notice? That even the tree that was forbidden was good for food and a delight to the eyes. God granted pleasure in eating. And by the way, not for nothing, you think eating is fun and pleasurable now? In a world where, where uh, food is contaminated, where our taste buds don't work like they should? Imagine how much more enjoyable eating was in the garden and how enjoyable it's going to be in eternity. So, now, atheists would have us believe that things like taste and smell, they weren't primarily to bring pleasure. Rather, they developed, they evolved, so that we would avoid that which was bad for us. Oh, oh, you open the milk carton, that stinks. Actually, my nose failed me one time. Popped open a milk carton, chugged it. There were chunks in it. It was so spoiled. It was terrible. But an atheist, an evolutionist, would have us believe that's what your smell and taste does. So you you don't accidentally take that which is harmful for you. It developed evolutionarily to protect us and keep us alive. If that's true, then I would propose that it would be reasonable that we would find certain things distasteful but nothing tasteful. If, if we're to be protected from that which might be harmful, spoiled, rotten, decaying, then we need only to be able to smell or taste that which is bad. And there would be no place for the pleasure we find in smells and tastes. But, some atheists might argue, but... By finding pleasure in it, um, we evolve to be drawn toward food. We need it as nutrition. And so this taste evolved so that we would eat what we should eat. If that's true, then a Boston cream donut would be a superfood, not kale. I mean, come on. There's just no way that's the case. But God, in his grace to us, even in our dependence upon him, he made a world in which we could manipulate the things he's created so that we would have Boston cream donuts. You see, it is not a case that we find the bad foods to be distasteful, but rather it's that we find good foods to be very tasteful. That steak I had for Christmas dinner Mmm. That, that uh, uh, was it butter chicken that Becky made last night. Very good. We find pleasure. We find satisfaction. We find joy, even in our dependence upon God.
He was gracious to us in this way. The implications of this reality are nearly endless, but I'd like to point out just a few. For many of us, it speaks to the flawed affection we have for food. You know, it means that comfort food might, might, not for sure, if we are not careful, it can cross a line. When the gift, rather than the giver, becomes our solace, have we not exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created things? Are we not running to food as the end and goal, failing to see that food points us to our real need, the creator? More to the point, Jesus does not refer to your mom's baked mac and cheese as the comforter, nor to Ben and Jerry's. The good gifts from God must never replace God. We should not be seeking comfort in food in and of itself, but finding in it the grace, the grace of God and be going to him. Sometimes we lean uh, uh, inappropriately upon food for comfort. Other times we demonize food. Prohibition a hundred years ago demonstrated the limits of that worldview. Alcohol is not inherently the problem. Our abuse of it is. Boston cream donuts are not inherently the problem. Praise God. It's our abuse of them that is the problem. We must not demonize God's good gifts. To be sure, the enjoyment of food can become idolatry, just as the abuse of any other gift from God can be. But to disdain the good and enjoyable nature of his sustenance, of the sustenance he has provided, is a failure to rightly glorify and enjoy him. For how are we to enjoy God if we do not enjoy the good things he's made for us? So, this relationship between food and our, cell, our lives and our human existence, this is a universally recognized thing. It's not like it's limited to biblical foodology, but rather food studies sees this broadly. Um, every uh, uh, civilization, if it has any uh, uh, artwork, any literature, even an oral tradition, every civilization has a place for bread in its symbolism and in its food studies. And bread is always a picture of, of, of provision, of sustenance, of the good that keeps us alive. And can you think of any culture without bread? I actually did a little research on this and I could not find a single culture that does not have some form of a bread or bread-like substance. And almost without exception, they're good. Whether it's the naan of India or the flatbread of Lebanon or the bagels of New York or the sourdough of San Francisco, it's all good. Bread is a, a symbol of God's good provision for us. 
from mama's biscuits to nana's garlic bread, bread is a blessing. It is an enjoyable sustenance. To speak of the symbolic significance of bread without also mentioning wine is to do uh, food studies a disservice. Wine is not quite as culturally universal as is bread. There are, for example, some Asian cultures where wine is not uh, uh, used. Still, where wine does appear as part of a culture, it is always celebrated as a symbol of joy, of pleasure, of good times. God's goodness to us is never a, a mere sustenance, but it, is, it comes with the added blessing of enjoyment, of pleasure. Now, we were created susceptible to death and in that way dependent upon God. And he met that dependence with pleasurable and enjoyable, tasteful food and drink. So Foodology 101, food points us to our need for God and to God's good and gracious provision for us. Main point number two, we made ourselves subject to death. If God created us susceptible to death, we made ourselves subject to death. He made death a possibility. We made it a certainty. He made it avoidable. We made it inevitable. We moved death from the realm of theory into the realm of reality, and we did so through food. It is one of the great and terrible ironies of human history. You see, in telling Adam not to eat from the one tree, God was extending the lesson of the food that he had told them he could eat. You may eat of any tree in the garden. That is to say, to live, you need me and the things I've provided, which means you also need to trust me and avoid the things I'm telling you to avoid. So believe me, Adam, when I say, do not eat of that tree. God's laws have a do and a don't aspect to them. Have you noticed the pattern? We're only two weeks into our catechism questions about the Ten Commandments, but have you noticed the pattern? And I'll just, you know, spoiler alert, the next eight are going to follow the same pattern. We ask, what is the commandment? Just state it, get it out there so we know what we're talking about. And then we ask, what does the commandment require? And then we ask, what does the commandment forbid? There is a do and a don't aspect to God's law. We tend to focus on the don't. God's law forbids. We miss the fact that God's law has a requirement side. Last fall, when we began our catechism, we asked the question, what is sin? And the answer followed the same pattern that our commandments have been following. It first addressed the do, even though our tendency is to think of the don't. Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Lack of conformity, that which we should be doing and are not doing. 
So why, when the Westminster divines got together and wrestled through and formed our catechism, when they came up with this summary of what we believe the Bible teaches, why did they take that pattern? Well, we find it here in the very first giving of any commandment. God does not begin with, do not eat of that tree, but you may then go eat of any other tree. He begins with the do. You depend on me. You need what I have provided. You cannot exist on your own. Take freely and eat of all of these good things. But do not take of that tree. You see, in our inherent dependence, we are inherently less than God. We are God-like in many ways, but we are not God. We forget that in the garden, death was actually a risk in two different ways. Not only did Adam have to not eat of that tree, but he had to eat of the other trees. Adam could have defied God in two ways. He could have said, fine, I won't eat of that tree, but I'm going to go on a hunger strike. Since you won't let me eat of that tree, I'm not eating of any trees. And death would have still been the outcome. To be what we are supposed to be, to be in a right relationship with God, we need both sides of that equation. We need to recognize our need for him and our dependence upon him and to participate and take of that which he provides. We also need to recognize the inherent limitations of our not being God and to steer clear of that which he forbids. We are susceptible to death in either way. You see, now when you think about it this way, when you put food into this context, God's response to Adam's sin makes a bit more sense. There is a tendency, and even I myself have expressed this thinking, there is this tendency to see God's death penalty as an over-the-top reaction to Adam's sin. But our little study of Foodology 101 demonstrates how food was the outward picture of our fundamental relationship to God. We need him, and he meets that need graciously and kindly and enjoyably. So in eating of the forbidden tree, Adam took God's gracious gift of dependence, and he used it, he co-opted it, to be a symbol of his independence. Adam sought his life away from the giver of life. Adam sought his sustenance apart from the sustainer. Ironically, Adam took the very manifestation of our dependence, shook it in God's face, saying, we don't need you. Ponder that for just a moment. Adam's act of independence was based on something that came from God. Right? Without God, Adam could not have defied God. The visible manifestation of sustenance became the visible manifestation of our claim to emancipation. 
Is it any wonder then that God withdrew life and brought about death? God withholding life was, in hindsight, the only reasonable and just response. You know, in an international military conflict, uh, the president, and not every country works this way, and I suppose we haven't always, but generally, the president and the Joint Chiefs will, will speak of a proportional response. If another country kicks dirt on your shoes, you don't shoot them through the heart. If rogue nation X sabotages your naval base, you might destroy their military headquarters, but you don't carpet bomb their capital city. Many have thought God's response was disproportionate. But it really wasn't. Adam trampled on the fundamental tenets of our relationship to God, of the very nature of our existence and his. And God simply upended that nature. You do not want to acknowledge your dependence upon me? Then this is what you face without me. Foodology point number one, God made us susceptible to death, depended upon him, and that dependence was illustrated in the primacy of food. Foodology point number two, by rejecting God's provision for our need, we made ourselves subject to death under its sway, under its domination. And we did so through food. By the way, and not for nothing, so far I have leaned exclusively on the first two chapters of Genesis, but let's not imagine that this theme is not throughout the scriptures. The famines that drove Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of Canaan demonstrated man's dependence upon God expressed in food. The manna that fell from heaven in the wilderness demonstrated our dependence upon God expressed in food. The bread of the presence in the tabernacle was symbolic of our uh, dependence upon God. Psalm 23, we see food symbolizing God's generous provision. You set a table before me, my cup runneth over. The promised land, for that matter, was not a land of sports cars and flat screens. It was not even a land of manly men and beautiful women. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, richness and sweetness. A land where God would provide and sustain his people generously, graciously, enjoyably. I imagine there are many other examples. There is one other for sure. When it all wraps up, it wraps up at the marriage feast of the Lamb. This place of food in the Bible is incredibly important. And it is an appropriate subset of theology. God made us susceptible to death and then sustained us through food. We took that food, expressed our defiance of him, and made ourselves subject to death. So what does any of this have to do with Luke's account of the Lord's Supper? In the first sermon of this series, back on January 1st, 
four weeks ago. I didn't call it foodology, but we did consider the communal, sociological, relational aspects of the Lord's table. At that table, God chooses to identify with us. He chooses to be seen with us. We talked about how sharing a meal has meaning. In, in that sermon, in that text, we saw the implications of eating together. Today, I want us to consider the implications of eating. First, consider the context. The Lord's Supper occurs in the context of Passover. A whole sermon, or 12, could be dedicated to the topic of the Passover. But we will say this briefly. The Passover was the quintessential symbol of the link between food and existence, between food and life. That which had a seemingly perfect existence, a spotless lamb, was killed, its life taken from it. And the symbol of its life, the blood, was applied as an act of faith so as to protect, so as to sustain, so as to keep alive the believing household. And it was eaten, again, symbolic of giving life. And again, let's not imagine that eating lamb was a matter of course for them. It was most certainly not. This was one of the finest delicacies. You see, sheep and goats, they needed to be alive. They needed the wool to make their clothes. They needed the milk to sustain their lives. You don't kill lambs and eat them routinely. To do so would be to destroy your life in so many other ways. Did they eat sheep and goat? Sure. The occasional mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, but it would have been an old goat that had served its purpose and died. Lamb was a delicacy. This is not a mere meal. This is the finest food available to them. The Lord's Supper came in the context of the Passover, which symbolized God's preservation of life served up in a delicious way. Again, we could spend a lot longer on the Passover, but we will move on. By the way, I am aware that there were some distasteful things at that meal as well. Having considered briefly the context, let's look now at what Jesus actually says with the elements of the Lord's Supper. Verse 19, back in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. What does given for you mean? Well, for three years, Jesus has been teaching the 12 things like this. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. In the context of that teaching, when Jesus says, this is my body given for you, it can only mean one thing. That in it, you have what you need. That in it, you have life. That in it, you are sustained. That in it, the death that reigned over you no longer reigns over you. Foodology 101. Bread equals nourishment, sustenance, life. At our communion table, and sadly it's not here today, At our communion table, we come not only to be identified with Christ, but to be sustained and kept alive by Christ. You see, that which was outside of God, that which he created, the the trees in Eden, that which pointed to his sustaining power in the Garden of Eden, no longer points to him, but at the Lord's table is him. In case we were missing the message of where we find our sustenance, in case we were missing the message of where our dependence lies, at the Lord's table, Jesus says it plainly. This is my body given for you. Had he withheld bread, the symbolism would have been, your life is over. By giving them bread, it was symbolic of here's life. By linking it to him, he makes clear, life is found in me. Your only hope of true sustenance is in me. Your only hope of true pleasure in living life is in me. And the cup? Again, Foodology 101 Why in most of the world points to pleasure and joy. We see this even in Jesus' own life, right? At the wedding in Cana, he converts the water to wine. Why? So the party could go on. So they could keep having a good time celebrating God's gift of marriage. Wine is symbolic of joy. And of his blood. He takes that which is ordinarily symbolic of joy. And he says, where does your joy come from? This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. You want to truly live? You want to truly live a joyous life? You want to truly live a happy, contented, blessed life? You have to live in Jesus. You have to live in me, he says to the twelve. This is not minimal, mere sustenance. This is not a picture of simply avoiding death. It is a picture of a return to the gracious kindness of a sustaining God. Christ comes to us with the sustenance we need and with the joy we desire. His blood poured out makes that joy possible. His blood, sealing a new covenant with God, restores man to the life that was lost in Eden. The relationship that we forfeited at one tree is restored at another tree. In week one, 
we learn that communion was a picture of God's longing to be identified with us through a communal meal. Today, in our little brief study of foodology, we see that Jesus' sacrifice is the only true sustenance, meeting every spiritual need and promising that one day every physical need will be met as well. It is in Christ and at his table that we see our lives sustained and blessed, provided for in the bread we need, enjoyed in the wine we love. At the Lord's table, we see a beautiful picture of Jesus sustaining us and blessing us. At the Lord's table, we see a great opportunity to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for dying in our place, and thank you for giving us a meal that points to that death and points to the reality of that death and points to what we gain through that death. Thank you for your table at which we partake of this nourishment, this sustaining for our lives, and that we partake through your death, through your blood poured out, we see joy, we see hope, we see excitement, we see the promise of true life restored and renewed. We pray this in your name. Amen.